Everybody, welcome back uh, to another episode of Passion Fruit Presents with Taylor Lorenz. I think that's just the name of the show now. <laughs> um, nice to have you here, Taylor. Yeah, excited to be here. Um, Taylor is the author of Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Uh, and that book is coming out really, really soon, and we're really excited about it. I managed to read some of uh, it this weekend, and I got to say, there's a lot there in the history of social media and how we've progressed in the last 20 years. What I was really surprised about when I was reading the book was just how little money content creators have made throughout the course of this entire experiment of social media and being online. Um, can you walk us through a little bit of the history of that? Definitely, yeah. Well, a lot of people think of the sort of creator industry as starting with YouTube and YouTubers. Mm -hmm. um, I write about all of this in my book, which really charts the origin of kind of this whole world that we live in now of like the creator driven economy. Um, and I would argue that it really starts with bloggers and mm -hmm. specifically mommy bloggers. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about this in the book, but I think these moms in the early aughts were the first to really build personal brands online and then monetize them through sponsorships, affiliate revenue, direct monetization, like all of these revenue streams that we still use today, these women pioneered in like, you know, 2004. So but, but yeah, the lack of money is so crazy. I mean, these women in some cases were, had massive audiences that, that outpaced, you know, huge national magazines at the mm -hmm. time, but they weren't getting anything near, you know, they were lucky if they got like $2,000 from Verizon, you know, a year. So it was, yeah, it was hard. I remember one of my first earliest jobs in blogging was like, we created a site when everyone got uh, like thrown off a radar and everything was shuttering in 2008 after the first housing crash. And we created the site called Ask Me, which American Society of Shit Can Media Elites, I guess we can say that, we'll bleep it. Um, but uh, what I did was I just found American Apparel person and we just set up a deal where like they would pay us X amount of dollars to run ads on the website for the whole month. And that's how we sustained, which is like I went out and found a guy who was willing to give us free clothes and uh, like sell some ads. But it would like, it really was a more of a benefactor program. He didn't need like our, our like sort of amount of content that we were generating or the traffic or the views. But some of these people, especially the mommy bloggers, like you said, were making so much like in terms of just eyes on them. And there was no TikTok or YouTube or They were or producing so much. And I think it was a lack of mainstream respect. I mean, mm -hmm. at the time, the digital advertising ecosystem was so nascent. So there wasn't even really the technology. Like even if you had really sort of valued these women and been like, look, they deserve a lot of money. It was, it was just so early that mm -hmm. those deals weren't what they became. Mm -hmm. Now, those women ended up, some of them who really pivoted into Instagram, I talk about like Reed Drummond and other women that really ended up sort of carrying their brands on and building entire, you know, cookware lines or home lines. But a lot of the women burn out, they burned out on the internet sort of before that mm -hmm. because um, it was such a sort of toxic environment. Like people were so cruel to them. I mean, even when we're talking about words like ecosystem, like when did ecosystem become like the term for it? Because that implies like there is a circle of life, Hakuna Matata, kind of thing yeah. going on here and that there's Google AdSense or there's a system in place, but that was not the case for early internet. No, I mean, these people were really just sort of like making making it up as they went along. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was just really haphazard and 
chaotic. And I talk about kind of the way that it got like systematized, I guess. Mm -hmm. And like that ecosystem started to develop, which is there started to be these sort of third party sites. There's, I talk about BlogHer, which was an early, Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of conference for women bloggers to meet up and share, you know, revenue ideas. Advertising, although a lot of blogs were advertised, especially in tech and media and politics, um, when women especially sort of did it around their personalities, like when Heather Armstrong, one of the pioneering mommy bloggers, added ads on her site in 2004, she was just like, you know, eviscerated for it because Mm -hmm. people were just so angry like, you know, they were accused of sort of like commodifying motherhood and, mm-hmm. you know, motherhood is supposed to be the sacred thing. How could you write about it? And then you're trying to make money off your own kids. And it's very funny because now, of course, we have an entire world of parenting influencers. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, it was really hard for those original people. And same with YouTube. I mean, YouTube rolled out their partner program in 2007. I think it was December when it formally launched. But it was, there was no money in it. I mean, one of the more most interesting things I think about Heather is the story about like when she went to go, she got a free trip by Verizon or somebody like that. Uh, Banana Republic. Banana Republic to, to go on a farm and to ride a horse. And she wrote about it and she did her like requirements, um, but they didn't like the actual article because she uh, referred to some euphemisms and did not like the horse riding experience. And so that kind of beget the yes. experience of like having like marketing places be able to look at your copy before approving the posts and stuff yeah. like that, which I thought was really interesting. Cause of course now that's like the standard du jour thing with sponsored content. Yeah, it was so, well, so early sponsored content had no guardrails and mm-hmm. people were just sort of like happy if the blogger, you know, wrote about it and there wasn't this like this sort of tension. And it's so funny because what brands liked about those women, it's like the same thing kind of happens today, I would say on a different scale, but like is the authenticity. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, those women were too candid almost about their lives. And then it's, you know, brands were like, whoa, whoa, okay. Like, you know, you can be authentic a little bit, but, you know, don't be talking about like your crotch or things like that. That's Mm -hmm. so, you know, unbecoming of women. And (laughs) um, yeah, it just, it, it, the sort of like the dynamics started to change. And also a lot, all that happened actually right around the turn of the early 2010s when Mm -hmm. things were getting more sort of curated and visual. The Pinterest launched in 2011. And so this vision of motherhood was actually reverting back to the sort of like super sanitized and aspirational version of motherhood that we saw in the 90s in the magazines. So when we talk about the motherhood aspect of it, that is like the pioneering, pioneer mag almost uh, idea of it. But like, what about MySpace? When we talk about like Mm-hmm. 90s aesthetic, early auto aesthetic. Like I have to think about MySpace and the celebrities that were sort of beget of that era, the Tila Tequilas of the world. Oh yeah, I talk a lot about that era in my book and just MySpace. I mean, MySpace UTA set up their digital department. I think it was in 2004, 2006. I can't remember, but the point of it was really to do deals for MySpace TV, mm-hmm. um, and sort of because there started to be this new class of digital talent mm-hmm. online. MySpace was really weird because they did not want people monetizing. Um, So you had people making their own product lines really early, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, That woman, I forget her name now, Forbidden is what she went by. But, you know, a bunch of them had like early kind of T-shirt lines or beauty lines, or they used it to launch their career in music. It was, there just wasn't, no one was approaching the internet for money. The internet was seen as this place that you would like spend time if, if you had failed in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. We used to, I used to work at a bar in Bushwick and we booked talent exclusively through MySpace. It's like, if you sent mm-hmm. us a message on MySpace, you got booked for the night because it was sort of entirely done there. And then one day it just went away. Like one day it yeah. was just no one was using MySpace anymore. And it's because they, 
I'd switch to different social platforms. But I think people really forget that that idea of like seeing kids and like what that aesthetic was was like built on the MySpace celebrity like idea. And oh yeah, MySpace. I mean, one sort of theme throughout my book is just this notion of young women pioneering internet culture over and over again. Mm -hmm. You had young teen girls with the whole like scene aesthetic. Like I talk about this girl Kiki Cannibal, who's kind of off the internet now, but was like sort of one of these. Um, if you've seen a picture of her, you would sort of recognize her immediately. She had that whole like scene look. And also this was the era of digital photography getting sort of party photos going online. So you had people like Patrick McMullen putting photos on the internet and Getty Images uploading their photos online. And so suddenly people were privy to, and obviously sites like the Cobra Snake and other sort of party photo websites, these like cult figures emerged out of party photos. Like they weren't even building their own audience, but people were like, I love this girl. I see her in all these party photos. Like, who is she? I want to be her. Uh, Patrick McMullen is the sweetest man. Uh, like, when we had a whole period of The Observer where I was just trying to do a menace to society column where I was, like, trying to become a socialite. Uh-huh. And Patrick McMullen was, like, my sort of, uh, you know, Pygmalion figure and all of that. But I think one of the things that we found out early on in your book, it's something you discussed, I think, in the prologue, is just what happened with, this, with the high society with the advent of these photographers with the advent of yeah. social media with the internet involved in something that had previously been a very cloistered like group of people who didn't pay that much attention to what the lower class people might have thought of them yeah yeah my book opens with the story of socialite rank which is mm-hmm. um now I feel so ancient talking about it because I'm like I remember you know that doesn't seem that long ago it was actually in 2006 but it was um this blog that upended New York society and it started ranking socialites through these sort of different um, inputs, like photos on Patrick McMullen was one, you know, how many parties did you go to? What were you wearing? What sort of designers, you know, were you working with? And, and it was basically this, yeah, it was an early ranking system and it was just two random people, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, which was very shocking at the time. I think now you would expect, of course, these are some random trolls, but at the time people their photos were online, but they weren't thinking of that. And Mm -hmm. so they were like, how does somebody know everything about my life? It's like, because it's documented and it's on the internet every day, but one person, you know, these people decided to look through the party photos. So I really love that story. And I've always just thought that was such a fascinating story because it sort of became this metaphor for the broader internet where Mm -hmm. like, we're all kind of being ranked Mm -hmm. and we're all performing and we all become very cognizant of these like niche social dynamics Mm -hmm. and, um, the sort of competitiveness that emerged on the, you know, between the women that were ranked on the site. I think that's sort of what the whole internet became. And so, I mean, like, so when we're talking about like socialite rank, we're not talking about male socialites or like no, male. It was all women. It was all women. Yeah. Uh, I worked for guests of a guest for a short period of oh, time. Yeah. Guest of a guest. And that was, that was sort of in the similar vein of like mm-hmm. party reporting. And like, you would just go out and just document what people were wearing, doing, seeing, like, just what they were saying. And it felt very, at the time, it felt very novel. It felt very, like, cool. Like, it was uh, like it was transgressive in some ways. But then I look back on it, and I think of a lot of the reporting that we did, like, that they did over at Gawker um, about just maybe how tinged with misogyny it some of this was. Tinged. <laughs> it was, like, the most outright misogynist stuff ever. Not to say that your reporting was that way, but, like... <laughs> I'm sure it was. I mean, it's, it's, it was just, like just rampant misogyny to a level that's shocking to me even today. Yeah. And we live in a very misogynist internet today. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what's been going on. But like 
No, I mean, it was, it was crazy. And it was women. Again, it was like the mommy bloggers. It was the scene girls. It was the socialites. It was, it was all these women that mm-hmm. like built this whole creator economy or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, the, the new media industry. Mm-hmm. And they were just pilloried for it. Like so much vitriol. And same with the fashion bloggers too. Um, mm-hmm. I talk about in the book that like there was this thing called Bloggergate when these bloggers were sat front row at Dolce & Gabbana. I remember this. And people were just livid. Like people were so angry that yeah. bloggers would, you know, sit in front of traditional press. Well, it was like the rookie mag. Um, what is her name? Uh, Tavi. Tavi. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. when she started sitting with Anna Wintour, that was a huge uproar. She was like, 14 or something. Yeah, she was such a baby. But and and you still see this in the media today. You mm-hmm. see these people where they're they're sort of in media because they want like power and they they want they don't like people that they feel like circumvented the system. Yeah. It's like I paid my dues. I was an assistant. I had to get coffee for the Vogue editor for mm-hmm. you know 30 years. I was gonna say probably not 30 years, but you know, five years. Like mm-hmm. I worked my way up and or I went to the right school. Mm-hmm. I went to Columbia Journalism School. Mm-hmm. Who do you think you are to like, you know, write on the internet? And, you know, it's funny to go back as a reporter and reread these conversations where people were like, well, of course, writing on the internet isn't real writing. That's you not know, real journalism. That's not real journalism. I and mean, yeah. The New Yorker.com is not actually the New Yorker. It's like now you wouldn't even know what's in the print. I mean, New Yorker is an exception in the sense that like they still have a magazine. Most magazines don't even have a print edition. It's so funny because I tried signing up for Wired Digital and then they were like, for $1 more for the entire <laughs> year you get, you just get the print edition. Well, they were like, you might as well. It's basically free. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I guess, I guess, I get what you're saying. So I guess I'll go, like get a physical copy of Wired now. But one of the people that you talk about a lot in this context of someone trying to make money and become a, you know, have a business acumen while still being a woman and sort of related in the fashion media space is Julia Allison, who was a very, I wouldn't even say controversial because everyone was sort of on the same side of like the conversation. Yeah. To to say controversial is to say that like there was anyone defending uh, like who she was. But can you talk a little bit about like what what yeah. space she occupies in all this conversation? Well, Julia is one of the first true multi-platform influencers in the sense that she wasn't, you know, back then it was very specific. Like you were a blogger or you were a video creator or you were like a, you know, everyone sort of was in these boxes. Mm-hmm. Julia really transcended that. She did what was called life casting, which at the time would just, now it's just called vlogging basically, mm-hmm. but there wasn't that word, hadn't emerged as yet. Um mm-hmm. But she blogged, she posted on Vimeo, she did an early deal with Next New Networks, um, which was uh, sort of the original MCN, which was acquired by YouTube, which actually came up with the word creator in its modern usage. Yeah. Um, and she was just creating content all over. She was um, linking, you know, she did tons of early advertising deals with Sony, with big companies, and she would also link her outfits. That's how I found her originally. I would shop her little, she would, you know, share what she was wearing and share what she was doing and share the parties she was at and blog about her romantic life. And Jacob and Julia. Yeah. Very famous, very famous site of uh, her and Which, her, Jacob blog book, right? Yeah. And I actually, you know, I didn't put that in my book because I think she's so defined by these male relationships in yeah. her life. And actually she was the pioneer. Like when you look back at these people that she was affiliated with, it's like these men faded from existence because they didn't, they ultimately, like, Julia was the one that was ahead of the time. She was the one that got it, mm-hmm. but she was just crucified in the media. And actually, that, her story was um, excerpted in Rolling Stone, just the excerpt from my book. And I saw, I, like, link-searched it on Twitter, and um, there are people still, like, somebody, some guy, 
uh, who I saw as like a critic at like the Hollywood Reporter or something was like, look at what they're trying to do. They're trying to vindicate her. And I was like, yes, bitch, we're trying to vindicate her. Yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, also, like, 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 also like who... Who is still thinking, if you know who Julia Allison is, like, you should not... It's this vitriol, but yeah. it's, like, it's this hatred. And when you dig under it, it's, like, well, why is that bad? What? Why is what she did bad? Yeah. You know? I'm, what she did ended up... She, like, she was, she empowered herself. Like, she, she built her own media brand. There were so many brands that were also built off the, like... Con- like constellation of just hating on her, like reblogging. Gonk. Oh, there was 100%, all these things yeah. that, like, I would end up like finding my name on there because I would just be searching Drew Grant on the internet, and it would just be like people were just talking shit in the comment sections, and would just be all like people but that I, were women that were awful, you know? Yeah, but I and I want to say something because there was another woman on Twitter too that was like, oh, you know, this this doesn't. She was only famous because of her anti fandom or whatever. That's not true. Mm-hmm. I spoke to her fans. I spoke to people that did brand deals with her. Mm-hmm. She moved product. She what she had fans. Those women who were my age, and I was one of them, didn't have social media. There wasn't this fandom culture today. Like today, you see someone coming for your favorite person. Like mm-hmm. you have your own platform, so you're gonna go on Twitter or Instagram and like defend them. Back then, it was this like there were very few producers, and everyone else was consumers. So her fans were not they weren't producing content on their own. A lot of them didn't even have social media on their own. They would just go to her blog and read it and maybe buy her sweater that she wore because it looked cute in a party photo. So there's no activation of the hive, is what you're saying? She had no defense. Mm -hmm. And even today, people are like, oh, she didn't have fans. It's like, but she did. Yeah. She did. That's literally how she paid her rent was through marketing and affiliate marketing. So early. This is crazy. So like, to go back a little bit about what you're saying then, like, how do we make the jump from affiliate marketing, like being these one-off things that people wouldn't negotiate the deals themselves, just sort of like the more modern inca- uh, incarnation of it, uh, the versions of like YouTube and the ad, you know, the ad things that now you have to go through TikTok's own influencer platform so they can yeah. get a cut of the deal. I mean, how did those things well, develop? it started with the YouTube partner program mm-hmm. because in 2007, you know, YouTube rolls out its partner program, basically giving creators... Um, YouTubers at the time, they were still calling them partners, not even creators, a cut of the ad revenue that ran on their video. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the beginning. Um, It was very hard to get in that program. There's only a few people early in and you didn't really make, you made like nothing basically, but it was this sort of this beginning of this notion of like, oh, a company can actually like build its own creator for, you know, facility creators. Most of the rest, aside from YouTube, all the other tech companies were very hostile to creators, very Mm -hmm. hostile. They Mm -hmm. actually... And even today, uh, like look at someone like Elon, it's like they really resent the power that a lot of these users had over the platform and Mm -hmm. they didn't want users. They didn't want any one group of users or one user to like have that sway. And Mm -hmm. so they kind of tried to like keep them down. Mm -hmm. They weren't like, hey, how can we facilitate your business? Yeah, it was really interesting to read that like Google videos like was watching YouTube at the idea of like, oh, we were trying to do licensing deals with studios. And it's almost like the opposite of creator content. Like they were trying to use... Uh, like the video platforms of the internet to like just continue business as usual in Hollywood and instead it ended up like yeah. upending the whole system over there. Yeah. It's like super interesting. I would say it got really professionalized during the MCN era of the first half of the 2010s. Okay, unpack that. Because that's when like you really started to see these, you know, maker studios, for instance, which was born out of the first collab channel and content house, the station, where, um, you know, you had this group of creators banding together, realizing they're sort of economic potential, mm-hmm. and then a sort of umbrella company saying, okay, we also recognize your economic potential. 
we know you are not, you guys are not like good business people. Like let us kind of leverage, you know, work you into this network. We'll get you the brand deals. We'll handle all these operations. We'll up your content and you'll be part of this network. Obviously that ended up not working out because the MCNs just got so big. They were signing like hundreds of channels. They could never service that many creators. So Mm -hmm. it kind of was a big bust, but I think that's when things started to be like professionalized a little bit more. So when did like Google AdSense have come into play? When did these things where they're like, now we're just like, okay, well, you have to turn in your taxes and like name yourself as a you know contract <laughs> employee, like, I mean, a contractor, like this became like an actual job yeah. for people. Well, I think it really started to become more of a job in the early 2010s because mm-hmm. that is again, when um, YouTube started to reward like watch time. People were really like, people were just making a little bit more money because the advertising market had matured and people were starting to look at them, look at YouTube, not just as a place to like upload some random videos, but to actually program for almost Mm -hmm. like a television network, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I I recognize I need to upload every, you know, Tuesday or whatever. They started to give YouTubers, like they started to really cultivate this talent, YouTube Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And, um, so you saw, you know, they had, they would like fly these creators to New York. They would put them, they would give them best practices. They would give them camera equipment. I mean, that's really interesting that there was even like a best practices, like, you know, like outreach. That, and that came from Next New Networks. Mm-hmm. You know, Next New Networks was sort of the original New York MCN that was founded by Tim Shea and I think some other people. Um, but, you know, that became their partner program. So, I mean, we talk about Lonely Girl 15. I remember that being like yeah. the first ARG. I'm really into horror ARGs. There's so much on the internet. There's so much on YouTube and, and multi, you know, uh, multimedia. Like they jump from YouTube to being a Twitter account to being a Tumblr and they just have these long narratives. But I need people to explain that to me. Like I yeah. need explainer videos that are just like content about this content that you would otherwise never find on online. You would never know like the entry points. And I just think it's so funny that like there is these, there are these things happening all the time that people are making the most creative, like storytelling narrative decisions. And like, sometimes they're not seeing a dollar of that. They're not seeing a dollar of it until like, you know, somebody else makes money off of like the ad sales of explaining it. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so true. Well, now there's this whole like explainer culture and like, investigative like with lonely girl 15 no one no there wasn't a comment there wasn't like a commentary you know no one was like even looking at things like this might be a stunt i mean eventually they did and it was uncovered to be this like i don't want to spoil it for people that don't know that story but like you know it was uncovered to be not what it seemed yeah but um but there wasn't that culture back then Mm -hmm. so people just were like "Hmm, that's kind of interesting i wonder what that is maybe some people looked into it but yeah i mean like this i feel like it started with the blair witch project of this idea of like is this real? Is this not? Yeah. And now we watch, and then it's like jumps to now, and we watch TikToks, and we're like, fake, not real. Or are these videos genuine? And like, are they scripted? Are they staged? Um, and like, what monetary possible monetary benefit there could be for being staged versus like a real video? Is there any actual like money in making real content as opposed to staged content? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, my book talks about sort of like the prank era of YouTube, which is Mm -hmm. when YouTube started to reward daily posting and like frequent posting. And Mm -hmm. in order to meet, you know, you need to keep people interested. And so pranks were this sort of like cheap and easy replicable content format because it was a lot of that like vine energy that like ended up going onto YouTube. And um, yeah, and it just, it took off. I think, I mean, most all of them are staged, but a Mm -hmm. lot of them are not. And um, I don't think people care that much, actually. Like, I think people, I mean, I think people want to believe they're real. And if it's obviously fake, it's not going to perform as well. But Mm -hmm. I think there's also like even, 
I mean, I just think of that video of Logan Paul running around lassoing women um, and then asking them to kiss him, like, on sort of Venice Beach. And, like, you know, it's, like, were those women staged? No, maybe some of them. But, like, the point is, it's just, like, oh, haha, look at this guy that's doing this funny prank. I mean... Which is not funny, by the way. It's sort of, like, assault. But uh, I was about to say, the prank videos I've been introduced to recently uh, have did not seem like pranks so much as just, like... Yeah, assaulting women who may or may not be staged. I saw one recently yeah. where somebody just like the the prank. This was the joke: was he like sat next to a woman? This guy sat next to a woman at a beach and like just stared at her menacingly and spit and like just like started like fronting on her to the point where she got up and pulled a knife on him, and he just like spit on her again and then left. And I was like, so what's the joke? Like right. what what what's the prank? I guess the prank is if she was actually in on it and then it's all staged. But like. Otherwise, the implications of that are not funny. They are horrifying yeah. and terrible that this is like what we're doing for content or for content generation. I mean, does this actually make money? Does this? I will now. I mean, that ultimately led to a lot of the adpocalypse stuff, which okay. happened, you know, where the media in 2017 started to really meaningfully report on this bad behavior that was happening on YouTube. And suddenly, and also a lot of misinformation and other stuff that was going on at that time that was the first year of Trump's presidency. So there was like, suddenly the like energy towards these tech platforms changed in the press. And these advertisers were like, wait a minute, my ads are, wait, what? Like <laughs> Logan Paul did what? Like he filmed it or like PewDiePie said what? Like, mm -hmm. so a huge amount of advertisers also just pulled their money completely from the platform mm -hmm. for a while. And so that hurt creators of all sizes mm -hmm. and especially small creators. So it yeah, it just ended up being a really bad situation. And But I think it was a moment, I actually think it was necessary to like sort of change people's minds about YouTube. Mm -hmm. I was thinking back to when I started writing about YouTube and um, people used to just call it the site for cat videos. Do you remember that? Because uh, it was Keyboard Cat, it was yeah. Piano Cat, there was, yeah, Grumpy mm -hmm. Cat. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so people, you know, kind mm -hmm. of the way that they would call like TikTok a teen dance app, it would be like YouTube, the site for cat videos. And I think by 2017, people started to realize, like, okay, wait, this isn't cat videos. One, this is affecting our democracy. Two, there's a huge amount of misinformation and news on here. Mm -hmm. Three, like, these prank vloggers are doing, like, they're being outrageous and out of control and toxic. Mm -hmm. This was also, like, the Jake Paul Team 10 era. Like, mm -hmm. it was chaos and excess. And that was also when money had started to flow into the space mm -hmm. in an insane way. In sort of the mid-2010s, you saw all these marketing dollars, influencer marketing went like that. So... Yeah, it was all really chaotic. And then I think it had cooled down. We had the adpocalypse. We had a complete breakdown and burnout when every single YouTuber started to have a mental breakdown in like 2018 into 2019. Mm -hmm. You saw people also turning against like the Instagram aesthetic, that mm -hmm. like hyper curated look. And then we had the pandemic, which I think really ushered in this like total era of like authenticity or just like people not like that Instagram aesthetic being totally done mm -hmm. and a new sort of type type of creator rising up also with TikTok over instead of YouTube. I mean, the creator funds, I think, started around that time too, mm -hmm. as like maybe a response to the pandemic, maybe yeah. a response to just recognizing that creators, uh, at least the veneer of paying creators is something that a platform should be doing because they're making billions of dollars off of them. So the idea of these creator funds, which is, you know, they put a, they say they had put a per, uh, portion of, you know, $13 million aside and they're going to pay out creators. I mean, how do those things actually work? Or are there, are there any sort of rules or regulations around like these funds? Yeah. Well, there's not regulations around anything, mm -hmm. which is part of the problem. But not that I think that creators should be regulated, but just mm -hmm. the industry in general is so unregulated. Um, so creator funds are basically a big pool of money 
And um, the more creators that get accepted into the fund, of course, the smaller the piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. So they're not a great way to monetize. It has become the dominant way of monetizing short form content. And Mm -hmm. the reason that all these companies sort of started to get put on notice with TikTok is because TikTok provided discovery and growth, which was incredibly hard, right? Like Mm -hmm. YouTube was very stagnant and saturated. Instagram was very stagnant and saturated in 2019, 2018. So when TikTok came on and suddenly it was like, fertile ground and also TikTok's discovery mechanisms, like they constantly make new people sort of famous. All these other platforms were suddenly put on notice. TikTok also prioritized creators. Like they were like, we are a creator first platform, Mm -hmm. which is something that Instagram never would have said. YouTube sort of said that, but also was sort of like, I think very comfortable in its position as supreme. Yeah. And was really challenged, but has now been challenged by TikTok. Would you think that TikTok is almost like a way back to the MySpace era of like, the idea of it is that, like, yes, it's a social media app, and yes, you can connect with friends, but really, like, the whole feed is about, like, you discovering new talent, and this talent can range from doing anything. Like, it can be short-form horror, it can be, like, people doing cooking videos, it could be pranks, it could be singing, duets, stitches. I mean, like, it can be any kind of content, uh, like, one can think of, and I think it's led to a lot of creative bursts. Exactly. It's so funny because I went back and, you know, just looked at a lot of early marketing stuff for MySpace, the way they talk about the platform and sort of the the position that platform held, it ended up being TikTok. Like they were just 20 years ahead of their time mm-hmm. because the way that they talked about the platform as a vehicle for fame, this sort of entertainment model of social media, um, it just all ended up like that. TikTok is sort of the manifestation of all of it. Um, also just the role that both MySpace and TikTok played in the growth of the music industry and mm-hmm. how intertwined those platforms are with the music mm-hmm. industry. There's just so many parallels. And I think MySpace was sort of the original TikTok. It yeah. just was too early. If there's been like a theme that you can take away from like creators and uh, going back to mommy bloggers all the way through social media, all the way through YouTube to our current era, like what one thing can uh, we like take away as creators who are trying to make money on the internet? Is there any lesson like to be learned there? So many lessons. I mean, I would say like so many lessons I think you can read the book and sort of like take away from. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a common theme is is exploitation and just creators being exploited by these platforms and always being under-recognized mm-hmm. in terms of like how to make that work for you. Um, I mean, it's something that creators already know, which is like you just hop on platforms early and you try to leverage them for growth. And everyone knows that. That's why there's like a rush now every single platform like threads or whatever, like the first 48 hours of threads, everyone's like posting, like, let me just get some followers on here because who knows where it's going to go. But I do think that like now with, and I talk about this in the book too, but like the rise of these like e-commerce platforms and just the monetization streams, like there's so, there's so many different business models available Mm -hmm. and they didn't have like those diverse sort of streams of revenue were not available to a lot of content creators for the first 15, 20 years of the industry. So it's cool that, you know, you can make, there's all these new subscription platforms. There's Twitch. I mean, yeah, you can do super chats, super likes. You can yeah, do there's memberships. The, there's yeah. The mem- yeah, there's the like reward things. There's, I mean, there's just a lot more kind of like weird ways to make money online. But <laughs> You're none telling of, me. Yeah, but none <laughs> of them are stable. That's the problem. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the fundamental problem with all of this is that it's an industry built on sort of like, it, it, it's like, sort of held together with strings. Yeah. Like there's no social safety net. Okay. One other theme is just, it's like, whatever that meme is, is like the disrespect, <laughs> but like the disrespect, you know, <laughs> like that these content creators have to deal with every single day from the mainstream media, from, you know, people on the internet and just like these, like people that don't understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, I totally understand the resentment that they have because it would drive you crazy Yeah. to like be literally be in the trenches, building your own media company, bear, you know, making payroll, like doing this all by yourself. And then you have these journalists that shit on you. Yeah. You have like people online that are horrible. Mm-hmm. You have the platforms exploiting you. Yeah. It's like kind of amazing that anybody can do it. I mean, the idea that these are small businesses, like these, anybody who's in content creation has essentially at some point has to start like an LLC. They have to like, yeah, you know, like yeah, become a business. Yeah. And imagine doing this to any other mom and pop business like that we're trying to like fund or like give away like, you know, government money to or like, you know, there's there's all these different ways that we support mom and pop businesses or small businesses. And we are just not thinking creators because it is the arts and because it is a lot of women. I feel it's like- women. I mean, I just was thinking today, I, the, the New Yorker wrote about my book and wrote this like very condescending line of like sort of implying that I want everyone to become influencers. And then they include some stats. And most influencers said that they'll promote products they don't even believe in. And it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Is this where we are? You still don't get it. And of mm-hmm. course, look, I can't believe I'm like, yeah, the New York, the most legacy like media. Of course they don't get it. Of course mm-hmm. they don't. But like, we need people to get it and we need people to respect this kind of work because it is a, it is one of the most dominant forms of labor now in this country that people are like, not just like working in directly as talent, but working in, in terms of like relying on if you have a bike shop or whatever, right? Like you have start a YouTube channel. This is the way that people grow products market businesses. It's also like, yeah, there's there's a thing uh, recently that I saw on LinkedIn of all the old people, social networks to go on. But there was a thing of somebody saying, you know, like YouTubers, TikTokers, they're going to be like the next movie stars or whatever that they're already getting courted by Hollywood. And somebody went, well, what do you think kids want to be when they grow up? Movie stars or just like social media influencers? And I was like, well, it's not about what they want to be. I think kids today understand the reality of like, you can actually make a living. There's a more sustainable path towards becoming a content creator and actually making some, there's a middle ground, like movie stars, like luck and nepotism. Yeah. Like, you know, you can't like really bank on making a living. One in four, you know, Gen Z people think that they're going to make money in the content creation. And that is a probably true thing. Well, yeah, but it's also very hard because we have no safety net. We've like ushered this entire generation of kids and indoctrinate them with this notion of like be a content creator which is an amazing like I hope that they all can but if we're going to push people into that form of work we need universal health care we need like sort yes. of minimum wage that like we need like universal basic income or think like we need to, we need this like support structure mm-hmm. otherwise we're pushing everyone into like a capitalist hellscape where it's like you have to go viral every year or you're not going to be able to like you know retire that's dark i mean it's it's kind of like you need collective bargaining you yeah. need like it's yeah. the kind of same kind of thing as like the uh, like the lack of unionization in the music industry but i think yeah. there's there's a much better chance of like creators in platform whether it's platform specific or just in general come together and say this is this is what we want and this is like what we're saying that it's going to take to keep us on your platform because ultimately we make the content that makes you money and it's about changing the energy towards these platforms like mm-hmm. we need to, we need regular people to value this work so that they can push and i this is what i end my book with it's like we need to push for a better internet mm-hmm. these platforms have are actually quite responsive to their user base because social platforms are very unique in the sense that like the value truly comes from the users and the network that, so like you just have a lot more power. Mm-hmm. I mean, they control sort of not, you don't have power individually, but I think collectively these platforms do respond to campaigns and backlash and sort of pushing 
pushing them. So what you're saying is cancel culture YouTube. No, yeah. <laughs> let's use cancel culture to get everyone paid. Yeah. Let's, wow. That is a subversive act if I've ever heard of one. Taylor, thank you so much for, for joining us for another Passion Group Presents Taylor Lorenz. That's just the name of the show. Um, and congratulations on your book, Extremely Online. Uh, when will it be available? Yeah. You can just get it. You can get it anywhere. Um, Amazon, bookshop.org. I have extremelyonlinebook.com is the website. So you can go there and there's a whole way, myriad of ways to buy it. Will you be reading the audio? I read the intro, but for accessibility reasons, they don't let everyone read the full audio of the book. Well, I'm going to get the Kindle version of I chose the girl that read the audio. Oh, yeah? She sounds like me and she's cool. So <laughs> It's a whole industry of itself. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, the voice actors need work. So I'm happy that well, thank you so much, Taylor. And um, yeah, join us next time where we'll probably be talking to Taylor Lorenz <laughs> um, about the creator economy. Thank you. Bye.